comes here. Okay. Well, okay then. We have a review question, which is, could somebody please explain the difference between a transducer and a transformer in terms of relating? What was the first? Transducer. We're just reviewing what we talked about last time. I have a bet going with Anne Chloe that nobody can do (laughs) (laughs) I'm betting Chloe's going to win the bet. (laughs) People don't really care about the difference between a transducer and a transformer. You can be both, but not at the same time. So. I see we don't have a lot of starry, starry faces going up. That's Janet. So Janet's looking in the book. Oh, see, <laughs> Ryan, that's what it's for, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's page 247 or something like that, 248. Yes, a transducer changes a frequency from one frequency to another, like a, one form to another, changes an energy from one form to another, another form. So for example, uh, my partner in California and I invented a transducer that you could mount on the front of a large uh, shipping boat. And it would, and it was a kind of a crystal thing. And then we drilled a bunch of holes in it and pumped high pressure air through the back of it. And then we added a frequent, we added electricity to it, and it changed electricity vibration into physical vibration of the crystal. And then it vibrated micro-sized bubbles that would roll up over the front of the bow of the ship and would increase the efficiency of the fuel about 14% of the boat floating through the water because of the bubbles made a friction-free surface. That's a transducer. So change the electricity and the vibration. And a transformer changes the the intensity of a, of a, so it changes from a low intensity to high intensity or high intensity to low intensity. The transformer is the thing that you plug your computer into the wall with, and it changes it from 120 volts or 250 volts down to 19 volts or something like that. <clears throat> so it doesn't fry the computer. And what does it have to do with what does it have to do with you? <laughs> you are a human being, and you have both capacities. You can when stuff is coming at you and you need a vibration of energy of one kind and you want to change it to energy of a different kind, you function as a transducer. And if the energy is coming in low level and you want it high level or it's high level and you want it low level, then you can be a transformer. And this is magic. This is, well, it's science. It's massians, something like that. (laughs) So, okay, that's my check-in for today. I have something for later, but right now, does anybody else have something you'd like to share? The, the waterfalls that you fly over when you try experiments, you know, you find yourself flying and you want to know how to get your wings stronger. 
So you find yourself in the underworld and there's no lights. How do you do that? You find yourself with a question that you can't answer and you don't, and you're afraid of it. You don't know what to do with it. Your partner, I, what? I mean, I could go for a long I'm not, time. And it's not really an experiment, but it's a, a sharing of, uh, on Sunday, I held space for Rage Day. And even if I invented Rage Club online, I n- never held a Rage Day, except with Phyllis, which was before COVID, which was like my first time. And it was like terrifying. So I don't even count it as like a valid you space. You did with me too. In Santa, in... Even alone. Oh, alone. Yeah. Alone. That was with Phyllis though. She's not. Yeah. It's... Okay. 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 Well, my story is already taking water. Okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, I was in Rio and it was a rage day for women. It was only women, 10 women and me. And I somehow opening this space for the archaeological women, I've had this conversation with space holders of other, other contexts. And the message I'm getting from them is the women who want to do the real radical work, they don't exist. And I'm like, I, that is an old story. Like that is such a, bad story to have and because when I was in Rio there was women who had never heard of possibility management and by the end of the day they were holding space for emotional healing processes for each other I mean it was and and like an hour and a half 20 minute emotional healing processes start middle and end wrapped up and each woman got a complete you know complete healing and and I'm just getting that there's it's it's ripe. The field for the 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 next the next woman's work. That's not the goddess work. That's not the cozy, soft. Let's taking care of ourselves work. That's about really holding space and healing and transformation and growing up and holding space for something bigger than oneself. These they're ready, and I think it just takes like for me. I realize it takes that which is part of the process I'm going through also with uh, the women team that I'm part of the women of earth team is this question of how am I not in integrity with my context when, especially in this case with other women, but it applies to really all space that I'm holding space for what, in what ways am I not in integrity between what I'm the stand that I'm taking, like inside the matrix that I've built, the clarity that I have, the bright principles, how much bright principles can come from me and in the space that I'm holding. And I, I realize what the more I can be, have integrity between my parts, like I can have, bring my parts together. The, the space holder, the article writer, the, you know, individual employee who's going through emotional healing processes and initiation. Like, th- then the women are there. They just show up. Even if they don't even know that, just the space that I'm holding is calling forth their incredible, whatever, this, the, really the, the bigness of their being and of their stand, even if they never could talk about it before. So it's, it's been, it was a great celebration in Rio. Mm-hmm. Clinton. Will you talk more about integrating in parts? Whatever that means or how mm. it goes. Well, how it start is 
that I think people show up, you know, in a study group or, you know, in your spaces or in training spaces like ETBN labs and people show up on good behavior. And so sort of like, you know, there's a halo around the head and I'm doing practices. I'm going through my emotional healing processes. I'm doing my initiations. And, and then, you know, the reality of moving in with people and living with them, the whole, you know, reality shows up. And, and that's something that I, Clinton and I, but I've done more recently, like having bridge houses and moving in with people. And so then it becomes a lot more clear that the, the integration of parts, which is for something along the line of that each part, even the survival parts, like even the box, even the gremlin, I would say to some degree, the child or the parent or whatever, these different survival parts are, they are put in your zoo, like they're set up in your zoo as a way that they're supporting your purpose, you know, your, 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 whatever, the purpose that has majority vote. So in, in terms of a path of evolution, what, what we would, you know, promote or invite is the part, the purpose that would have majority vote would be your archetypal lineage would be serving your bright principles. And that's why even in the, one of the first map of expand the box, we say the, the first purpose of the box is survival purpose. And then it can change into an expansive purpose where the box becomes a toolbox for evolution. And it's the same for the gremlin, the chain. And that's really part of the gremlin transformation work is how to shift um, the use of gremlin. Like gremlin will always serve a shadow purpose. Like the, the, the impulses, the shadow purposes, the, the, like the survival moves, the gremlin will always have that. And so I think there's this illusion that gremlin transformation or enlightenment, it's, it, it kills or it eliminates the gremlin, that there's no more of these impulses. But I don't think it's true. I think on the contrary, these impulses just, they have even more opportunity to come because there's more power. There's more grip on reality. So the gremlin has more chances so the point is not to eliminate that as part of the gremlin, but that the purpose, the way you use gremlin, the way you're making use of that part called gremlin is to align, is to serve whatever, your archetypal lineage, your bright, your bright, bright purpose. And so mm, really, uh, that's why the, then the orientation of even gremlin transformation is not trying to understand gremlin. Or try to justify why your gremlin would do this or that. It's like, well, I was wounded, you know, I was, I was abused as a child. I was, and it's like, yes, and it's a great place to start to start getting to know your gremlin. But um, the purpose of gremlin transformation is, so what, you know, so what all of that happened to us. And, and so I think that's where we started with this archetypal, the archetypal domain is it doesn't matter. It's like what matters is what, what you do now, like now and now and now and now, you, like independently of whatever happened to you in the past. And I, and I think that's then that's a, this like freedom of movement to integrate these parts to serve 
your whatever the purpose you choose mm. yeah thank you bye I think there's more. I think it's a big, it's a big part of the work. And I, I, I want to emphasize this because really I hear so many people say, well, my gremlin did this. And it's like, "Mm -mm, you did this. You let your gremlin do this. Mm -hmm. And this, or, or people say, well, I have a story. You know, I have this story that, and, and I mean, it's a great distinction to be able to notice that you can, you know, you can have a story. Okay. But the purpose of the story, any story is gremlin food. So if you're carrying a story, you're feeding your gremlin. There's no connection, presence, uh, collaboration. Bright principles cannot exist through a story. Even mm-hmm. a quote unquote positive story. I think there was this question from Dimitra I didn't answer yet, but even a positive story still has a shadow purpose mm. and, so you can, and you can figure it out in doing the the story process i have a story about you with the fear and the evidence and the um what is it no the the story the evidence the fear behind the story and then there's a benefit to each stories even the quote-unquote positive ones and so you can whatever something like you can catch people uh, like it's not about like catching them, but people who say that around you, you know, I have a story as a way to justify some kind of shadow purpose. It's like forget it. There's there's no justification. It's like I mean, somebody we had a gremlin transformation space holding call yesterday, and Patrizio Diaz said there is no compassion for unconscious gremlin. There's no need to have compassion for the unconscious gremlin, you know, like, oh, this happened to them or this, you know, you know, oh, it makes sense or um, in a way of like being understanding. Well, that will trigger a lot of political correct people. PC people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I just, this is sort of a, but Sonia and I are holding space for Sonia, no, Sonia Gonzalez, not Sonia Belter. Sonia Gonzalez and I are holding space for this, uh, which I'm really excited about, called, uh, it's a chapter one of the Archaeical Women's Journey called healing and transforming abuse and it's and the purpose of that space is to build enough of something like build enough of matrix or build enough of um like freedom of movement between the part of us that is abused and that is you know and and we have all decisions we have energetic part of our you know energetic body that has been split off um, we have energetic blocks, all these, you know, the abuse creates survival strategies and we, we keep them over past life and this life. And, but it's, is so to some degree heal that, like just go through the emotional healing processes and, and 
whatever, mostly emotional healing processes, but also to create enough freedom of movement between I am not my wounds. I'm not my wounds and experience a whole, um, like an experience of oneself as free of like unhooked. I guess it's sort of like unhooked and unsnapped by our own wounds. And it's not to dismiss them, but it's to get wounds are just gateways for the being to come more and more alive. But they're not at all justification for playing small, for not playing full out. And then, because the, the healing never ends. So it's not like, oh, we'll, we'll handle all the wounds and then, you know, we healed. And it's not like that. It's, it, it's to change our relationship to our wounds as stepping stone. They're a stepping stone on that path. And that's, and, and in, a, in terms of a radical responsibility context, that's why we have decided to have these wounds. You know, where we can make such a assumption. We've decided to have these wounds so that when we would go through the process, new part of our being could could come out and um, whatever, be present in the world. So that's happening in, in July and it's a woman, it's a woman's space. Thank you. No. Hello, Sonia. Thank you. Hello, welcome. Hello. No. <laughs> the other Sonia. Yeah. This Sonia. Sonia Weiter. Welter. Sonia Welter. Mm-hmm. So could, would you just introduce yourself? Like, how did you find us? Yeah, um, my name is Sonia Welter. I'm, I'm living in Germany. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Nice to see you and nice to hear you. It's my first time. <laughs> How did you find it? Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's about uh, Dorothee. <laughs> She's mm. inside of the group here. She told me about this group. Mm-hmm. Well, thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Welcome. I'd like to take this opportunity now that we're kind of here in the space and talking about wounds <clears throat> i just got some rather shocking news that one of our trainers in germany dagmar tornado had an accident from a paraglider yesterday and she's in real bad shape mm-hmm. and i just want to spend a minute or so each of us sending any kind of healing energy or love or whatever whatever you can send. She's in a artificially induced coma right now. Her legs broken or really badly broken. Might even be removed by now. I don't know. So I don't I don't really know. Michael Portner has driven there with another trainer to be with. Uh, Samoto, which is Dagmar's partner, and we get news from Michael Portner. But anyway, I just does everybody get what I'm saying? You guys all know how to pray. You all know how to call in whatever you can. She's in the southern Germany around Munich area, I suppose. So we'll just 
go ahead and do whatever you can for the next minute or two. Okay, thanks. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> yes. Does anybody want to say anything about that? About Dagma, you mean? Or what you just did or whatever, yeah. No, I have something else after that. 
Okay. Anybody? Okay. Could everybody take a deep breath, please? Janet, go ahead. Following on and Chloe from you talking about transforming wounded parts, the other part for me is about the vacuums. So since I became job manager for the Everything Lab that starts today, I have been holding space for a place where literally everything can tumble out. Women do not have to hold in what's locked in their system. And the vacuums in my life where I did not have find an elder, um, I didn't find an elder. And so I know inside me as an experience the importance of having such a space. And the three of us who are the main job people, I've called us the 200 plus, 18 because we have over 200 years between us, Renee, Trish, and I. And then on the outside, that is Rabina and Barbara. And it's like, and we get to sit in the center of this. The elders sit in the center. And elders are simply being a space, a space where women have been falling apart. Janet, can I have a session? Janet, can I have a session? And I said, no, I haven't time for a session. And you're simply in the pre-lab boil-up. The, the logs are on the cauldron. The cauldron's burning. And it's a place you can come and let it disintegrate. It doesn't need every single EHP anymore, like it did 40 years when I... The pathway has been forged. Yes, I bush-bashed through every process. But now that makes a portal. So, yeah, I'm going after this, I'll go and pick people up from the airport. Oh, I'm goosing. And we need these spaces. It does not need every AHP anymore. And one thing that's really breathtaking, as in it takes my breath away, is for this man to so see me. It's like, wow, I really get to see myself because of what you're reflecting to meet James. Thank you. You want to say that, Janet, or we should just keep going? <laughs> it's more when I talk, it's like another layer can pop off. Thank you, Clinton. Okay. Thank you.
Anybody else have something cooking? Now that the logs are on the fire. <clears throat> James, what is it like for you to be hanging out with a woman <clears throat> who lets herself be seen? You've had the capacity to see a person for quite a while, but it's such a frightening thing to be seen and to be mirrored. And what is it like for you? I'm sure you've tried it before with other people. The, the thing that I'm noticing is is a a shift in how how ready I am to let feelings come to to bubble and be and 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 to to welcome them and and to embrace the information that they bring and to to be um, to not be so attached to to them but to be more curious about the information there's 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 something there's something in the space that that is that that Janet holds that the emotions are so welcome that they don't they 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 the, and the feelings that they don't need to be uh, I want to say indulged because it's 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 kind of there's something about not needing to to like dive in there so much just allow them and allow the information that comes with them is is it it feels so liberating Hmm. ingrid just one second okay you were just going like this okay james what are you working on um (laughs) I'm I'm working on creating. That's what I mean. What, what am I creating? Same question. A different angle. Yeah. Allowing the a passion which I have parked for about six years to come alive again. Can you be specific? Yes, I I. It was reawakened in me my passion for for community for 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 supporting the nurturing of community specifically through through local food production vibrant local food economies and I parked it for six years and i I discovered uh, when yeah I, I felt the pain of having parked that of having 
gone into the modern culture world to be a business consultant. Yeah, because I thought that's what I needed to do to make money to support family. And and I have so much joy that that's I I, I still allow that process but it all that work, but it, but I I'm I'm welcoming and and sensing where my service is in community and uh, yeah and I, and I have a question from last night from a men's group so it's a men's group that's not it's not a pm men's group although there are three four four of us in a group of 10 and there was one man who was clearly he 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 admitted his struggle with shame he he was able to identify shame and i have a I was able to be there for him in a sense of helping him welcome that and see it as an opportunity, which he hadn't seen because he was so keen to so like to get rid of it. And I have a question around mm, Without somebody going through the whole journey of all learning all of the distinctions, I, I want I want to help. I, w- I want to be able to serve somebody in that situation to go just one more step. Just and and <laughs> yeah, he, he even said, and that's as far as I'm going to go. Like he stated it, and I, I went in on reflection. I I think I could. I, I, if I'd asked him the question about that, it might have been a, a useful, a valuable step to just inquire about that statement. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that bridge building. What I have noticed with that is that the distinction are, you know, for example, the mixed emotion, with shame is a mixed emotion, is experiential research. And so it it was built on previously made distinction, you know, people who could make the discovery that shame is a mixed emotion. They had done work in inner navigating and and everything. But if you simply state shame is a mixed emotion of anger, sadness, and fear. And can you say what your anger in the shame is, your fear in the shame is, and your sadness in the shame is people will find it immediately because it is so experiential. And so you don't need to show there's a map of mixed emotion and there's four feelings and nothing. You just say that shame is a mixed emotion has these three in it. Can you say which one? And then after they say the sadness, the fear, the anger, you say, do you still feel shame? And usually people say, no, I, I don't feel shame anymore. I feel anger and I feel sadness and I feel anger. Yeah. And as, as simple as that. And what we found is that if, if the person still does feel shame, mm-hmm. it's because they want to. And it's because the idea behind shame is similar to guilt, which is if I can beat myself up enough with the shame, I can do it again. I can do whatever it is again. If I can beat myself up enough and beating yourself up is gremlin self-cannibalism. It's it's really just gremlin food beating yourself up. 
So if somebody does not want to disintegrate the shame into its component feelings or emotions and, and use those, then they're really addicted or dedicated to feeding their gremlin. And you know where they are then. You know what, what their track is. Did, did you get that about the, if you're wanting to feel sh shame or guilt, then it's so that you can do it again. You beat yourself up about it. No. I, I don't think that was the case. It was more his own fear of being being seen, being revealing his feelings in the in the group, and, and it was that was the rest that the rest of the night was his stance like that. Yeah, arms crossed. You know, I think. I mean, in terms of this conversation of having integrity with your context, James. I, I I got that. I like I heard it that that's exactly like yes, my contact like my integrity in that moment was to bring the conversation about feeling and the and and the primacy of and the importance of. But sorry, I interrupted. Please let. Me. What I'm saying is that I don't know. We've just learned to be so reasonable. You know, being, oh, somebody doesn't want, you know, somebody said, I don't want to go, you know, this is as far as I go. And, and we think, oh, oh, well, that's what they want. Okay, but that's not true. You know, that's what their gremlin want. And so you can go unreasonable and say, I don't believe your gremlin. I'm going to talk to a different part of you. I want to talk to a different part of you. The part that was willing to admit the shame, the part that's opening the door. I'm going to walk through the door with you. That's the part I'm committed to. And that would, I think, would have, you know, this idea that integrity is respecting people's wishes. Like, that's just crap. Because who's, who's talking? You know, which I is talking? So for a person who hasn't felt anything, feeling shame is a huge breakthrough. Mm -hmm. and, and, but the distinction is there's a huge difference between feeling shame and feeling conscious remorse. And the shame will not change anything, but the remorse will. And to feel remorse, you can encourage that to be a thousand percent big because, you know, things don't, we don't change our behavior until it feels too bad to keep doing it the old way. And if we can, if we can actually feel the remorse which would be uh, sadness, no? Yeah, but it's sadness with a with a. Was it purpose intention? Well, it's like it's my fault, you know. It's I caused this. I'm in, I created this, and I, I wish I would have something like that. And so, if you can let the remorse encourage the remorse, but distinguish that from shame, because shame is just this pretty much a gremlin food, but remorse is transformational. And so, really bring bring remorse into your men's group. Like bring it in. Really, that's the path for, for men to get out of the patriarchy and wake up and grow up and show up and it's remorse. Thank you, Clinton. There, there, you. Is, there is something about the, the conscious remorse you are talking about, Clinton. For me, it came through as being very aware that I was responsible for 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 
creating something. And only when I was, when this really landed, I could really feel the pain. And um, this was when, when I, when I separated, I could feel some sort of pain. And I thought this was sadness. And after three years, two, two and a half years, I realized it was not the grief and the real pain because I was not aware of, of my responsibility. And what I was experiencing was shame and guilt. Mm. And when the, that this awareness of, oh, I created this. Then it really landed. And the pain of, of destroying something, not in beating myself up, but yeah, I was there. I, I did that. This opened up the possibility to start grieving. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. my experience that shame lifts when it when it is spoken with other people that the shame of it lifts off and uncovers the feelings and that and then the shame is released and the feelings remain can you give an example phyllis Oh, um, well, if I feel shame, I, I can't think of an example right offhand, but if I feel shame about something, then I don't want to talk about it. It's, it's, um, I think I'm alone in, in what I've done or how I feel about something. And, and then when I speak it, I learned that other people have this experience too. And usually that's the case. And especially, you know, in a group. And so it's like, oh, <clears throat> it's, and plus the more I speak it, the more comfortable I get with it so that I can move through it. I can move through all the feelings. If I don't speak it in front of people, then it's, then I'm alone with it. And it's much more difficult to move through the feelings. Wow, thank you. I mean, Phyllis, you're at the point right now where you could describe an experiment for people to do. And since you're an experimenter writer, could you just say the experiment? Hmm. Um. Well, I, <clears throat> what just comes up up top is pretty simple. It's just what I said. It's get two or three other people <clears throat> and speak about something that you feel shame about. And, and then once, and once you speak about that, speak about what the feelings underneath are. And then ask if other people have had those experiences. Well, you know, I would only add that it could be something that you're shamed about 
even only 3% intense. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be 70% intense shame. Just anything where you even had a, 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 like a scent of shame. It doesn't have to be any big thing because right. it will work at any level. What you just described will work at any level of intensity. Yes. Wow, thank you. And it especially works when it's, I mean, when it's high intensity, it's really poignant. Did you think of something just then about the high intensity or you just, you just came? No, I, um, no, I just know that I have felt high intensity shame. And I remember speaking about it. I cannot remember what it was. I mean, it's gone. Yeah, I mean, it's gone. It works. It works. <laughs> Ingrid, Ingrid, go ahead. Um, <laughs> On shame and need to understand. So, 12 years ago, you did an experiment with shame and you call yeah. in. Uh, I call a the experiment Spotlight on shame. Spotlight on shame. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it was in my time when I did nonviolent communication, and the experiment was to interrupt whatever is going on when I. Recognize him and to make a gesture. I need to finish. Hold on, hold on. The experiment was spotlight on shame. The experiment, and you were doing nonviolent communication at the time, and it was the experiment was any time you felt even a little bit of shame, you would interrupt everything. And then, yeah. and then I made a gesture. Spotlight on him. Spotlight on him. And I said only one friend when I was ashamed of. <laughs> and then the uh, the faith continued like normal and <laughs> it had me a lot to have fun with shame. Yeah. <laughs> and it, so when you would do it, you do spotlight on shame spot with the gesture, then you would say what you were ashamed of, but the, uh, friend, the conversation would continue. Yeah. And then, but you had a lot, it, it created a lot of fun. And you could have fun yeah. with the shame. Yeah. And they gave a uh, niceness to shame. 
and Neurotransmitters by doing the physical, so you're shifting yeah. everything neurologically as well with that interrupting yeah. action. Going, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that could be an experiment for everybody, too. Spotlight on shame. Yeah, we had this experiment before where people were not so conscious of when they would feel happy, and so our experiment was you're walking down the street and you notice that you're feeling even. 3% happy, you just raise your, your hand up. You just walk down the street with your arm up. And then people from possibility management, they would see somebody else walking down the street like this. And go, hey, I'm happy. I'm happy about that. Now we have a new one. It's like, oh, a spotlight on shame. <laughs> Thank you. I've got a nice story in I said, we're walking through Takaku, and I was saying to James, this is where Anne Chloe and Clinton and I went to Delish when we were going there. And this woman says, hey, you two. It's like, yes, I'm the fun police. You two are having too much fun. <laughs> she was on, it, it was a joking thing. So, yeah, you were in our thoughts just last weekend. <laughs> Don't have heaps of fun and show it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the fun police is the people are not having enough fun. She goes around being like, why are you having, you know, <laughs> enough fun? Her box is freaking out. <laughs> Thank you. Are we ready for a little bit of Section 8C on page 248 that says, the title is Love, Love, Archetypal Love, but there wasn't enough room to write Ordinary Love, Extraordinary Love, and Archetypal Love. So that's what it really means. It's about that. So, you know, we spent a year or so going through the whole ordinary domains and extraordinary domains in... Two years. Two years. <clears throat> yes. Two years journeying through the dark lands and so, and it's it's still so easy to forget the perspective that there are these three domains, and and when we're not intentionally holding the clarity that there are three domains of relating, then there's only one domain, and guess which one it is? It's ordinary. And so it takes a little extra effort. It takes some three percent of your attention to keep breathing. And know that there are three domains, ordinary, extraordinary, and archetypal. And check where, where you are. You know, check which one you're in. So I'll start reading. Once you have experimented enough to expand your personal experience until it carries more weight than the opinions of your culture. So that 
that is only the first part of the sentence, but it's, it is an experiment itself, which is that you are radically relying on your direct experience more than the, the, the opinions or stories of your local culture, of the people in the ordinary world around you. So you're actually sensing into your own direct experience and using that as your compass, that as your navigation system, and not the people's opinions around you. So the story that Janet just told about going down the street and having more fun than is ordinary, ordinarily experienced or expressed in that, in that, on that street, you know. So she was, you guys were doing that. You were using your own experience. You're trusting that, relying on that more than what do other people think. What will other people think? Well, how will they judge me, criticize me, blame me, etc., attack me? So that's the first part of the sentence. And it says, you know, when you can do that, once you have released yourself from pacing back and forth inside the cage of ordinary human relating, you get that? Once you've stepped outside of that cage of since everybody else is doing this, it's what's normal and accepted, so therefore I should do that, or I will be seen as strange. So once you released yourself from that cage, after you have taken a few breaths of sweet air and splashed clean sunshine on your face from extraordinary human relating, you will soon need to know where else it is possible to go, where else besides extraordinary. Let us start with a map that shows archetypal love. So the map that's in the book is simply, there's no real picture. It's just a list of those three domains. And I'll just tell you the three domains. Map of three kinds of love, it says. It's on page 249. Number one is ordinary human love, which is self-referenced, neurotic, quote-unquote, I need you kind of love, dependent on certain expected circumstances and experiences. Circumstances means uh, if he opens the door for me, he loves me. That's a circumstance. Or experiences, oh, I have this warm, fuzzy feeling in my belly, just like when mommy was feeding me cookies and milk. Therefore, I can have that feeling. Therefore, they love me. That's an experience. So it's a kind of love that depends on circumstances and experience. This is ordinary human love. Number two is extraordinary human love. It's respectful, playful, adult, responsible, alive in the present moment, independent of circumstances because you source love happening in each moment. So it's extraordinary because love cannot be scarce because you source love. And that, that is extraordinary. And so, and, and it frees you from looking around at the circumstances or the experience that you're having. So even if she does not open the door for you, even if you're feeling angry or scared, instead of the warm, fuzzy feeling, it doesn't mean love is not happening. So that's, and number three is archetypal love. It's the most abundant thing in the universe. 
this is an amazing contradiction, it seems, because, you know, in ordinary human love, love is scarce. I look around, does he love me? Doesn't he love me? Does he love me enough? Is he going to keep loving me? Whatever. This is love is scarce. But what we're saying in archetypal love, you start noticing that love is the most abundant thing in the universe. It's like the universe is built out of love. If you spin love, you get subatomic particles. This is how seriously the universe is made out of love. It's pure, radiant, but it's impersonal. Impersonal. It's not about you. So love could be happening in a space, and you can sense it, and it's not about you. The endless bright jewel of consciousness is love happening. It's the principle of principles, meaning if you take love and put it through some kind of a prism, and it spreads out into its component colors, you get a bunch of bright principles, like integrity, clarity, possibility, transformation, all that. These are bright principles. They're all components of, of love. I, I want to give an example. I think that's maybe this distinction between extraordinary human love and archetypal love. I was talking to a woman in, in Rio, and her and her partner have been together for seven years and pretty much have been able to source extraordinary love. And so they live together, but they also have a possibility team and they're trying to create this, um, uh, in Portuguese, it's a, a, a laboratorium, say that in English, uh, for utopia. Mm-hmm. That's the name they want it. And, but they, they cannot make it. And so I was asking her some question and she said, I'm afraid, like, the fear is that the project will be heavy on our relating, on our relationship. And, I, and I, what I said, I made this distinction then that the, I mean, most people come together for an, an ordinary love to have gremlin food. That's why people relate is so that they have an endless source of gremlin food. Okay. That's mostly ordinary love. And that she can create extraordinary human love, but that will still be personal and trying to have this, uh, a, a special r- relating space there with her with her partner but if she if they would move into creating this project made out of which would be serving archetypal love would be sourcing archetypal love then that they would they would shift out of extraordinary and their idea for that was that it would create a burden on their relating to to move and source a project that would be impersonal because then part of their relating would be impersonal, serving something greater than their relating. And and she was really grateful for that for that distinction. Which is what? Which was <clears throat> her fear was to source archetypal love. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of the burden was that the burden was the impersonality of archetypal love, because then she would be losing this personal extraordinary space. And couldn't imagine that that would actually feed more of their relating, but less of their personal relating. Mm -hmm. If you want to look into this further, there's a website called Evolution of Relating. Mm -hmm. And it shows these diagrams, these energetic diagrams of the evolution of relating. 
and the shift from extraordinary relating, which is when two people have their own center grounding cord and bubble. I don't know if you can see this. Mm -hmm. And actually are, they're not inside of each other's bubble, not inside. It's not like one is containing the other or they're both inside of each other. This is called enmeshment. We're holding space for <clears throat> each other. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So so a, this is the extraordinary relating is when they each has their own bubble of space and they're still, they're, they're touching, they're right next to each other. And then they have this being to being connection between the bubbles. And it's this incredibly different sensation than the enmeshed thing, which is a sensation of kind of knowing what the other person feels even before they do. And if they go away somewhere to go shopping or someplace, you're going, oh, when are they going to come back? Are they, do they forget about me? You know, like this. So, and from the extraordinary relating to the archetypal relating in terms of your relationship serving a project, the difference is this, which in this, this space is the space through which the principles of the, of the, of the project are, are with your relating. They're part of your relating is that it feeds, it actually feeds your relating and your relating feeds the project because you have a, this little gap through which these bright principles can do their work in the world, that, in the world that your relating is part of. So it's a, a huge difference between the extraordinary and the archetypals, that little space through which the bright principles can do their work. But that's, that's shown on these maps on the mm -hmm. uh, oh, evolution okay. of relating website. <laughs> what relating or relationship relating used to be relationship but i changed it. janet did you want to say what you're chuckling about oh no i was showing james so i was capturing in my own way but it became a butterfly because it's more than put it can you put it closer to the screen but the only the little diagram let's see oh yeah <laughs> then no. the project is in the middle, and there's the butterfly. So, you know, the butterfly project. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so somebody said something, and we just reading. No, stuff. I was reading, and you just read the map, and I just okay. gave you that example. All right. So, all right. So we talked about the map. Okay, then this says, the next paragraph, page 248. I don't know what it's going to say, and it starts with the word I. So this is really scary. This is, you know, the book is written you know, 14 years ago or something. And here we go. I may not be the most qualified to speak about archetypal love, period. I will try anyway, period. In my experience, archetypal love is of such subtle quality and such vast dimension that pinning it down into maps and procedures is like trying to grab a mountain of whipped cream. <laughs> and I can tell you about mountains of whipped cream because Anne Chloe and I, Anne Chloe took me on this adventure day in Paris <laughs> and we went to this town called Chantilly. Chantilly, Ooh. which is the French word for whipped cream. <laughs> and we went into this castle and we sat down at this little cafe because it was world famous for serving Chantilly. And I ordered, it was the birthplace of 
with the they made it up and created whipped cream there. So I sit down and they bring out Aunt Chloe's little pie first. And she ordered this little apple thing and had this little kind of blob of whipped cream on it. And I go, okay, I could manage that. And about 15 minutes later, they brought out mine. And mine was twice as big, twice as thick. And it had this blob of whipped cream on it, like almost that. as big as my head. It was like this big. And I'm standing, I'm sitting there looking at it's like this ball of grease, you know, and I'm, I'm going, how am I going to eat this thing? And I look around, there's all these old ladies and old men sitting there, and they're all just like shoveling this stuff down, go, they can do it, I can do it. And so, but it, it was more than just whipped cream, it was almost butter, and it had a bunch of sugar and vanilla and stuff like that whipped into it it was this, it was a dessert all by itself smashed on top of this huge strawberry thing and i and aunt chloe you know she just kept talking to me about amazing stuff and before i knew it it was gone <laughs> just kept talking to me, distract my attention and i just kept eating it man it's like, it was really okay you have to tell me you have to spell the name of that town for me because you got to do it, Phyllis. Yes, I am a whipped cream fanatic, and I have friends. <laughs> you have got to do this. You have got to do this. So C H, but Chloe, she sent it to C H A N T I L L Y, Chateau of Chanty, and it's a chateau there. And you just go there. Oh man, I dream about it sometimes, and sometimes it's a nightmare, and sometimes I'm in heaven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll be me tonight. <laughs> Both. <Yeah. laughs> it's really organize a lab there. Yes, we can organize a lab. Organize a lab there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Right. They have a beautiful space. The ducks would get upset probably, but all right, all right. So trying to grab a mountain of whipped cream is like trying to is trying to compartmentalize archetypal love, the archetypal. So the more you try to hold it, the more it slips away. You know, just just like you can't, it's there. It's obviously there. It's powerful. It's clear. It's present. The more you try to grab onto it, the less you get. So common sense rules say that we cannot speak about the unspeakable. In this consideration, we will just have to break the rules because we need to speak about the unspeakable <clears throat> because that's, it's our job now to explore, to inhabit, to inhabit in, in a re- while relating, to inhabit the archetypal domains. So we have to break the rule about speaking about the unspeakable. It may help to know that although you may not be able to speak about the unspeakable, you can still directly and wordlessly experience the unspeakable and then speak about the experience. Because you can speak about experience, but you need poetry, basically, to speak about experience. It's experiential. There's another great website called Experiential Reality. Would you do that one, too? And it... And it's a, it's a fundamental shift in living, in which is, and it's so underrated, like people think mm-hmm. that it's not a big deal, but it's this huge deal of shifting from verbal reality 
which is we're pounded into verbal reality as children in school. And when we learn to speak and spell and write and read with all these words, our reality starts conforming to the words. Like we start fitting our reality into the vocabulary that we have. And if we don't have a word for something, we do not experience it. And so then you, you have to ask yourself this question. Well, how much of the universe do I have words for? Compared, compared to how much of the universe there is, you know, and our vocabulary might be this big, you know, and the, and the universe is much bigger. So you can, can, most people in modern culture combine their life, can confine their life to their vocabulary. And then that's it. And they don't have a word for it. It passes them by. And there's tons of things. It's easy to say about things that you can experience that we don't have a word for. For example, if I, if I start describing that there's this little girl riding on a tricycle down on a, on a hot day on a sidewalk and she flips off from the tricycle and her knees are scraping on, on the sidewalk. Anybody feel it? Yeah. Did anybody feel that? What was, okay. What's the name of that experience? You felt it many times before. We do not have a name for that experience. People don't talk about that experience with each other because we don't have a name for it. But it's a big experience. Like it, it hits my whole body. It's a shivery, awful, you know, teeth. You know, it's just this. And we have this experience. Or did you ever have to go pee? For a long time, and you're waiting and waiting, and then you finally get to go pee, and then afterwards, your bladder goes. <laughs> you ever have? Okay, what's the name of that experience? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a name. <clears throat> so there's tons of things. There's so much out there that we don't have words for. But like like Janet showed, basically, you we can communicate about those things if we stay in touch with the experience and use words only as a bridge so that another person can share the experience. So you use words to paint the experience in another person's body. And until, and unless you're building a bridge with words, you don't need the words. You stay in the experience. And so it's living in experiential reality instead of verbal reality. Because the verbal reality is a bunch of these pigeonholes and as soon as you understand this and that and this and that, you've got it all pigeonholed, experience is over. Like like next time you're drinking orange juice or something, most people have a first sip of orange juice and then the rest of the glass, they don't even taste it. Why? Because they know what's happening in their mind. It's in verbal reality. I'm drinking orange juice. You can even say it's good, you know. But it's in a box, and you don't actually have the experience. So one of the things that I do is I take a sip of orange juice. I go, mmm. Mm -hmm. And then I erase it. And, I, and then the next sip is if I didn't ever have a sip of orange juice ever before in my life. And I take another sip and go, mmm, like this. And then I erase that. And I just keep over and over again having these start over experiences with the orange juice. And you can do that with looking at your partner. You can do that with hearing your voice. You can do that over, you just erase everything you have that's a story built on pigeonholed words that, or you understand or you know 
in verbal reality what your relating is about with this person. Even you, positive stories. Even positive stories. And you just erase them, start over again, fresh from zero. And you just get a, you can stay in experiential reality that way. So there's great experiments on that website. It's called Experiential Reality. Thank you. So you can still directly and wordlessly experience the unspeakable and then speak about the experience. Archetypal love is the radiance illuminating the chamber at the center of the great labyrinth of spaces. What the hell does that mean? Well, see map in section 18. <laughs> That's what it says. What a handy book that is. So apparently there's a map somewhere in section 8D. We're not there yet. If we get there, I'll show you. But okay, what it's saying is that we occupy spaces in our life. And this, this is called the study group space. But as you notice, there are many different spaces can arise in the study group space. And even from moment to moment, we can shift from one space to a different space. You know, here we're praying for somebody who had an accident. Here we're laughing about something else, a story. Here we're discovering a distinction. Every one of those is a different space. And so, and Chloe and I are holding this space and navigating this space. And we're aware that every space in the entire labyrinth of spaces. So imagine, imagine the the world the universe is made up of all these spaces and each one is unique and each one is separate from every other space and it so if you have a space here and a space here and they're and they're like connected together then there's only one space so you need something else in order to have two separate spaces what do you need Yeah. Yeah. This gap of nothingness. You need a gap of nothingness between these two spaces, or they will be one space. If you don't have this gap between spaces, it's all one space. So that's why duality is a lie. Anybody who's into duality, because this thing about, you know, it's either all one or it's it's two things. But you don't get two things unless there's a third thing, which is the gap between the spaces. So it's actually unity or triality. Triality instead of duality. You need the gap. One space, another space, a gap. You need three things. And there's something really interesting about that gap, which is what Ingrid said, there's nothing in there. There's nothing in the gap. <clears throat> so if there's nothing in the gap, what's possible in the gap? Everything. Transformation. Everything. Transformation. It's a guy. So everything. <laughs> Lisa likes transformation. So, <laughs> yeah, everything. So here's the thing. That nothingness that's between this space and this space is 
is the same as the nothingness between this space and this space. It's the same nothingness, which means you can get to any space from here. So any space that you're in, no matter how depressing, how overwhelming, how wonderful, how horrible, how belonging to somebody else, you know, how whatever kind of space you're in. If you don't want to be in that space, you just lean your shoulder up against the wall of the current space and put your attention and connect with all the people in the space that you're in. And then just lean on the wall and you'll be in the nothingness and use your intention to navigate to the next space and you'll pop right through the other wall into the new space and everybody will be with you who was connected with you. It's a wizard's trick. Just telling you some wizard tricks. I would add an experiment before that, which is to notice the space shift. And mm-hmm. and for that, it's really useful to minimize your now. Because if you have a big, like, the study group is one space, you know, that's a really big now. It's a two-hour now. And you, you don't get to experience, like Clinton was mentioning, the laughing space, the story space, the distinction space, the whatever. And And to notice... If you can notice the shift of space, then you can start noticing the the gaps between the different spaces. It's a great. But your now practice. has to be smaller yeah. than the than the gap between spaces. It's like if you're if you're watching a train, like a, a locomotive train go by mm-hmm. on the tracks, and it's one car, one car, one car, and normally you just see this train going by. But if you minimize your focus. You can see right through the gaps between each car. You can see right through the train as it goes by. And it depends on your intention and your focus. And that's what she's talking about. You have to minimize your now smaller than the gap between moments. And you can go right through those. And that's how these shifts are happening. And they happen anyway, unconsciously. But if you want them to happen consciously, then you have to learn some new skills like what we're talking about. And so the idea is that you can get to any space from anywhere. So you're no longer a victim of ever being in a space where you don't want to be. Because you can. And so it's really a fun experiment to, you know, be in a space that's gossiping or low drama or whatever, blah, blah. And you you make a sound or a word like, uh, I'm going nonlinear. Just say that. I'm going nonlinear. And anybody who pays attention to what you just said, you have, you're connected with them. And then you're this, then you just lean sideways out of the space that you're in and you start inhabiting the new space. You go, I'm doing an experiment about the continuation of spaceships. Each person is a spaceship, but we can function as a, as a, as a team of spaceships. You just start talking about the new, the new space. And then, and those people who you're in connection with will be in the new space with you. And the ones who are not will be left back in the old space. And so the, the idea is to not be left behind playing in a stupid game world. That's so stupid space. a stupid space. <laughs> so, these, so this is some experiment to try is just to practice shifting out of spaces where you don't want to be into spaces where you do want to be and, and create and inhabit um, the spaces that you want to explore, such as space of archetypal love. So I'm continuing to read. 
Archetypal love is the radiance illuminating the chamber at the center of the great labyrinth of spaces, meaning you can always get to the space of archetypal love because it's always there at the center of the labyrinth. And it's, you know, so it's, and it doesn't have to be physically in the middle, could be other places, but it's there. There's a space, a chamber called archetypal love and you and it's always available. There's never a time when it's not available because it did not go anywhere. If you're not in archetypal love, it's not because it disappeared. It's because you did. Because you went out somewhere else for another purpose. So you're the one who left it. And so it's great news. It's horrible news because you're radically responsible. But it's great news because you have this opportunity to go there anytime you want. Heart-rending poetry is the typical language that mere human beings traditionally use to speak of archetypal love. Like a light that is too bright for the eyes to tolerate, you must examine it indirectly through filters reflected by inference and implication. Anything about this right now, or should I just keep going? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> Who would somebody have to be to write this stuff? Yeah. So, so that so guess what. You know, the reason this stuff could be written was because the author was doing exactly what he's talking about. You know, was going to the place where this stuff starts, where this stuff originates, where this stuff reveals itself. You go into that space and then you just write down the experience. That's that's where this came from. But I wasn't telling anybody back then. So... Now we're we, lucky. Now we can talk about it. <laughs> since, okay, God, the word I is in there again. Okay, since I am inclined toward the physical sciences, I seek the physics of archetypal love. Does that make sense? I studied physics and mathematics and stuff, engineering. Okay, I seek the physics of archetypal love, how it works, the practical details, what we need to know to work in the domain of archetypal love. For example, already knowing that you cannot move from ordinary to archetypal relating, how do we get to archetypal love from here? You know, if you're in ordinary and you can't move from, you just can't get there from here. That was the uh, last week's study group or the week before we were talking about you cannot get there from here. So how do we get there? Traditional legends may hold some clues. Legends do not arise out of nothing. They derive from a source. And there is something true in every legend. Certain legends are passed on from generation to generation. The greatest of these legends is the legend of archetypal love. 
quote-unquote true love, they call it. We have heard this phrase in love songs endlessly and spoken on the big screen from time to time. In the film Princess Bride, how many people have seen Princess Bride? Yay! Sonia! Sonia! You cannot come into our bridge house if you haven't seen it. You got to watch Princess Bride. Unbelievable. (laughs) Dorothea, did you see it? What is the German name? Maybe I saw it. I don't know. Yes, it's. Braut is. Whatever. You, you, you would. You would already know what we're talking about without even knowing the title of the film. So, okay. In that film, Miracle Max asks the almost dead Wesley, who's this hero, he's almost dead. And and he asks him, lying on his kitchen table, what do you have this worth living for, he says, because they want Miracle Max to bring Wesley back to life. And and he the and the miracle max says, what do you have that's worth living for? And in parentheses it says you've got to see the film. Okay, <laughs> Max. Who said that? Wait, Max uses a bellows, you know, this thing for blowing air. He puts it in the <laughs> he blows his chest up with air and then he pushes down and say it again, Phyllis. <laughs> I've only seen it about 20 times. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh man, you get extra matrix points for that. Okay. And then and then he presses down on Wesley's chest so the almost corpse can utter a few words and he says true love which and that is good enough reason for the wizard to bring him back to life because he has something worth living great great then there's a lot of other stuff yeah possibilitator yes so it's on the list when we try circumscribing archetypal love with words so circumscribing means to like encompass to like really grab the whole thing with words When we try, we cannot but speak in superlatives. We cannot help but make reference to the astonishing. What do we really know about archetypal love? Nothing. But so what? Let us carry on with foolhardiness so great as to assert that every human being can have certainty and direct knowledge of archetypal love. How many people have actually experienced true love? Everybody. That is why the legend continues to excite us. Isn't this the most exciting part of the book? I don't get it when people stop reading. Most people have only read The Ordinary and Extraordinary and they get to the archetypal and they just stop. I'm going to stop showing up here. Yeah. Yeah. Where are the other 50 people in the study group? That's what I want to know. I see. Anything? Anything? Okay, you guys. You guys have an assignment this week. The assignment is write about archetypal love. Mm -hmm. Well, you've written it down. Okay, get your 
you know, in your big book, you sit down, you just let archetypal love write about itself. You know, what it is, how to get there, what to use it for, what it feels like, where it comes from, where it's taking you, you know, why it's so scary, why it's so full of love, you know, whatever, whatever it wants to say. You just sit down, close your eyes, take a deep breath, wait a few minutes, then get your pen and just start letting archetypal love write itself through you. And then next week we'll check in about this. Just do it. Do it a couple times, not just once. Doesn't have to be so long, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever. It's it's an infinite resource. So it, you could just sit down and write for the rest of your life until you just ran out of everything and fell over and be dead. What a way to go, eh? How did he die? Well, he was writing about archetypal love. And he just fell over dead after a while. After six years of writing about archetypal love, he, just, he ran out of peanut butter. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. You really want to keep going? It's page 249. We have a half hour. Okay. The next little section is called Responsibility for True Necessity. So there's a website called Necessity. And it's pretty good, I think. It's got some good stuff on it. Because it's it's interesting to learn about necessity. I remember I started learning about necessity in the early 1990s. No, sorry, late 1980s. I was living in Santa Rosa, California. I was a student of Mike McDonald, who was a student of E.J. Gold, who was a student of the universe. <laughs> and he, he started to try to teach us, Mike McDonald started trying to teach us about necessity. And so he says things occur according to the law of necessity. And if it's necessary, this thing happens. And if it's not necessary, something else is going to happen or it won't happen all the way or it'll be sloppy or like that. But So the question is, how do you create necessity? How can a, an individual person create necessity with a capital N? And it, and it was a, an amazing experience for me one one of the challenges he gave us in the group, we had a circle of about eight people, and each one of us was to create a, a talk, a public talk, in a little town of Santa Rosa, which is California. And I'd not given many public talks at all before. And so creating the necessity means, well, you have to you have to create a space. You have to rent a space or find a public space where people could gather. So I found a place in a bank. They had this little room about whatever, five meters by five meters that they would let the people in the town use for different public, valuable public things. And so they, I went in and convinced them to let me use the room on Thursday night at 7.30. And, and then I needed to make a poster. I needed to make some advertisement or something that would cause in the viewer you know, the reader of the poster, some necessity that would have them reserve their Thursday night to come to this talk. Even And they had, to, I had to charge money. It's like $8 or something I had to charge. And so my, my necessity 
that I created in the person had to be bigger than $8. You get that? Mm -hmm. It had to be bigger than the $8 in their pocket. Okay. Well, that's a challenge. So I, the, what I decided to do is a talk about called science fiction and spiritual work. And I, I don't know, I copied some diagrams from Dune or I don't know, some things like that. So I drew some spaceships <laughs> and some really far out stuff on this poster. And, uh, Sure enough, we had about 30 people come on Thursday night. <laughs> and so I'm sitting up in the front of the room, and it was near Christmas time. Should I tell this story? As you wish. That is also a quote from Princess Bride, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so before the talk, I built a, a crib, a crutch, which is this thing that Jesus is shown to be sleeping in baby Jesus would sleep in this wooden, it's like this wooden thing like this, and it's filled with straw. You know, it's the thing that they feed the sheep and the cows out of, basically. They put, you know, hay in there, and then they eat out of it. Or they put Jesus in there. Well, I made one of these things, and I got some straw, and I put that in there. Then I got this large banana squash, which is this pink, like, sausage-shaped squash from California. They have them. They're like, they're Kirkabitta Maxima, and it's like this big, big one. And I laid it in there and I had it next to me in the front of the room when I was at the talk. So I'm sitting there and I'm pointing to the baby Jesus squash in the, in the crutch right next to me. And I said, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is a bullshit detector. So every time, <laughs> every time I say anything bullshit, it, it wiggles. Of course I was wiggling it, you know, <laughs> So, and then I would say, and I, I said something bullshit and it was wiggling all over. And I says, but the thing is, every time you say something bullshit, it also wiggles. And so we have a bullshit detector in the space. And so I, I don't remember what I said, but we went on for an hour. It was, it was wild stuff. And one of the ladies from the bank was actually in the back of the room. She sat at the back of the room just to see what kind of weird thing the science fiction and spiritual work talk was about. What, what they were letting the, you know people use their bank room for. So she was sitting back there and halfway in the talk, she raises her hand and she goes, what's going on here? She was like, like, who are you people? Or like, like, is this, is this a group? Like, are, is this a sect? You know, she was <laughs> going like this. What? Is this a skit for her? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she, cause she was just like, and she, and she goes, how many people are, are in this group? You know, and a couple people put their hand up. But it was it was half the people were from the group and the other half were just strangers. But the, Mike McDonald, who's a space holder for the whole group, was sitting at the back next to her. And so he, they get around to him, you know, at the back of the room. She goes, and you? And, and, and he's, he goes, I'm just the janitor, the housemeister, you know, which was true. Like if I made a mess, he was going to clean it up. So he was there as a backup in case I really messed up. So it was this, this amazing talk. And at the end of the talk, I pull out this large butcher knife. And I, without even looking at the, I just cut the squash in half. And if you know about squash, like the big squash like that, they're hollow on the inside. And I said, what's inside of this squash is real air. And so just to let everybody go home, I'm going to open up the squash a little bit and you can stick your nose in there and have a little breath of real air before you go home. And so I'm going around, everybody's going, you know, having a little breath of real air from inside the squash. It's purified air. And then I get to that lady from the back of the bank 
And she just looks at me and goes, no, you know, the air out here is just fine. (laughs) And it's at that moment I used a trainer skill, which was I cut loose with this huge fart. This is because I was holding it a whole time in the talk. And I just just let rip with this giant fart. And she looks at me and goes, give me that, you know, give me the the real And um, that was how we ended it. But that was, so there's about, yeah, people still remember that talk. I mean, I do anyway. But the point was creating the necessity. It was creating the necessity for the people to come together in this space to have waking moments, you know, to have these real questions and to inquire and to have these distinctions and these questions. And then the bullshit detector was going quite often when people, I could say, it's not me, you know, it's the bullshit detector that's saying what you're saying is bullshit. So could you start over again and not say bullshit? So it was a really valuable tool to have in this space. This is more of a a spaceholder consideration, but a lot of your spaceholders for, for process and healing and coaching and stuff like that. But mm, I got to be faced with somebody who had no necessity. I was in a, it was a a sort of a coaching space and I said, what do you want? And they said, well, I don't know. And and then I was like, okay, well, I can't, you know, I can make a list of possibility, but it's not going to change because you have no necessity. And at that moment, I realized that that's probably the case for just so many people. And, and it, you know, I mean, whatever, if they've been through Rage Club, if they've been through some ETBN labs and, and it's still like, I don't know what my necessity is. I say, go plant trees. Like, If you don't know what you want and you're sitting in an apartment in a city, it, it's, a, it's like a waste of life. It's a waste of good hands. It's a waste of energy. And Gaia need trees. And so instead of not knowing what you want and being in a city, Go do not knowing what you want and go plant trees. You know, there's ecosystem restoration camps all over the place. There's restoration projects all over the place. All they need is people coming around planting the trees. Yeah. So as a as a hint for being faced with the, you know, just oh, a lack of necessity from clients. Yeah. So it says... There could be a good reason explaining the lack of cultural reference points for archetypal love. I'm just going to say that again. It's a section called Responsibility for True Necessity. And it says, there could be a good reason explaining the lack of cultural reference points for archetypal love. You get that? Modern culture does not offer reference points for archetypal love. Think about these questions. What percentage of the reading public would seriously study a book called Radiant Joy, Brilliant Love, which was the publisher's first title for the book? My title for the book was So Much Love, and the current title is Building Love That Lasts. But what percentage of the reading public would seriously study a book like that? Look around your neighborhood and be honest. How many would free up enough time and attention to buy this massive 500-page book and start experimenting, actually doing the experiments. Think of other countries and other continents. What percentage of humanity is moved to make efforts to expand 
their conscious experience into the domains of archetypal love? Probably not a large number. A realistic estimate would be something less than 1%. Okay, what is everybody else doing? The, that question is actually none of our business. What all those other people are doing is none of our business. More useful questions might be, what moves you in particular to stretch your intelligence, amoeba-like, to include greater competence with navigating creating, sourcing, navigating archetypal love. What makes this effort important for you? What do you get in exchange for the energy you invest in learning to create, hold space for, and navigate archetypal love? What keeps you reading this book rather than putting it down and looking somewhere else for something else to do? What makes you hungry for archetypal love informational food? It is not that this food supply has been hidden because each culture and each time for all human existence has had direct access to these understandings. So it's not like it's been never before revealed. It just waits there. If a person with true necessity was persistent and intelligent in their searching, they could always find archetypal love. There is really nothing new here. The most interesting question is, what makes now the right time for you? So that would be a question worth answering when you're writing this week. What makes now the right time for you? to be investigating, to getting necessity for gaining the skills and clarity about exploring archetypal love. What makes now the right time for you? A possible answer is that now is the time for you to receive clarity about archetypal love because you have built enough matrix in your being to have true necessity. Other people have not yet built that part of their matrix in their being, so they have no necessity. Matrix is built by weaving distinctions through your being. At first, your being is void of distinctions, like empty, like a loop with nothing inside of it. So it's your kind of your being is. Each distinction weaves a sensitive string across the loop to detect differences and similarities and connections between things of every nature. So that's an exact description of a bit of matrix. It's, this set, it's a distinction that allows you to actually detect differences or similarities or connections between things of every nature. That's what a distinction is. Distinction Before you have a distinction, you cannot detect the difference. After you have the distinction, you can detect the difference. Like what's the difference between caffeinated coffee and decaffeinated coffee? 
answer is a headache. So, so, but you can tell the difference, you know? So every single thing has, you can make this discern, it's called discerning. Discerning is the word to discern, and it's experiential word. And every distinction you get in your being amplifies your ability to discern. And so from simple distinctions like a stove may, might be hot, a thing that looks like a stove, it could be hot. You know, if you don't know that a stove might be hot just by looking at it and go, hey, that, that looks like a stove. It could be hot. That's a distinction. You put your hand on it and you burn yourself. Okay, so that's a, Or this sensation in my eyes means I'm tired. You know, there's a certain set of distinctions where your eyes are kind of burning or kind of weak or a little fuzzy. And you can go, oh, okay, this sensation means I'm tired. I should take a nap. Or to more complex and sophisticated distinctions like if I feel like a victim in any situation is only my gremlin generating low drama. Well, that's a sophisticated distinction. Or I can responsibly decode an irresponsibly encoded message. It is not fair, but I can choose to do it. That's a sophisticated distinction powerful distinction each distinction weaves over under around and through your other distinctions until your being with all these distinctions woven together starts to function like a a net that can collect new distinctions on its own and as your being collects further and further distinctions the weaving gets tighter together so when you take a net and weave it closer and closer together, so it's tighter and tighter weaving. So it it makes the weave tighter and tighter until at some point the net starts to function like a sail. You get that? The net has no more holes in it or not so many holes in it because the distinctions are tight enough together that it starts becoming a sail influenced by the force of bright principles or consciousness that blow you and your life in the direction of fulfilling your archetypal lineage. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's way cool, I mean, for me anyway. Like, it's so real, just an image. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a beautiful. I need to hear that today. Okay. Mm-hmm. You needed to hear it today. You're welcome, Ingrid. I'm glad. Yeah, it's like when your distinctions are woven close enough together and you start being blown around according to the Earth Coincidence Control Office, then your life starts taking on a purpose that's bigger than your own. And Chloe's mm-hmm. writing a website for Echo, the Earth Coincidence Control Office, and also for being or your being. Your being. And oh, also God. for build matrix. Mm. 
I would I would add that I think I might have said it in in this space before, but this gives a completely different image about what the being is. And there's this, it's really, I think it's a sort of a new age construct about this idea of I have a being and I have to take care of my being. And, and I have this image. It's like having a pet being. It's like you have a pet cat and you have a pet dog and you have a pet being. And sometimes you take your pet being on a walk or something. And, and this, because people say, oh, I need some time to be, you know, I need to go in nature so I can feed my being. That's, that means taking your, your pet being on a walk. And whereas this idea of if you build matrix into your being tied, you know, and it gets tight enough so that the forces of consciousness can blow through your being so that your life belongs to these forces instead of your, your box. box. Um, is then your your when you are in action, it is your being that is in action, and and that's how the that's how the it's not that the being gets fed; it's actually that the being gets gets to have central place. The being gets to gets the your life belongs to your being, which is really only this net through which these forces can do its its work. Yeah. What do you have, Dorothea? Now I feel fear that you ask me this. Yeah, speak from that place. Actually, I was, I was pretty happy today um, because of what happened in the last call where I realized that I always was a level going on of what can I, um, what value can I bring? How can I serve? What can I do? What can I, what can I do? Always generating which, what do I have? And about what you said, uh, Clinton, last week to me, I um, could let go of that. So there is no necessity. And I, <laughs> I actually enjoy to be here today. And there is nothing else to do than to be here. And that was that fear about that, Janet. You now ask me that I have to have to have something or have to say something. Um, Dorothea, that was it. What you just said, that was it. (laughs) It's not fabricated, it's not something you know, it isn't isn't a truth, whatever. It's you you were actually revealing. But what's going, what's going on? And thank you so much for doing that. Thank so, you. A joy to be with you. And it's been palpable in the space, even though you haven't said it with words. Your experience has been palpable in the space for me this morning. You understand? Yeah. Palpable means you could feel it, the mm-hmm. sense it. We can feel mm-hmm. it contributing to this space from your presence. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Thank you so much, Janet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got a lot of, out of that call, I can say. So I was writing a lot of things and sorting to my different actions I want to do. So, yeah, that was going on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You don't think you would read more? We got seven minutes. Mm -hmm. This is about bright principles and archetypal love. We have to read this section. Okay, then. <laughs> face is a different. What? Her face is a very different thing if you have a look, Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Okay. I agree. I, I agree we'll with see. you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You guys are gonna vote us. You have to wait till next week. I mean, it's well, been what we've been talking about. It's huge, and it's been. I love this stuff, and it's fantastic. And that's why we need more space. Okay. And, and more brain power to take it in. Okay. I it's gonna. It's actually gonna be a few weeks because next week we're in an ETB, and the week after that. We're in a lab, and so we're, we're meeting in three weeks, which I think is something around uh, the nine, maybe wow. of July. Wow. And just as a warning, that that date could also change because it's possible that Anne Chloe will be in its second ETB that week. Yeah. And so anyway, we'll let you know online in the group. But it'd be same day, same time. Same, same day, same time, but at least on the third week from now, mm -hmm. at the earliest. Uh, so, so no cheating. You're not allowed to read ahead. That would be just... <laughs> Too late. Too late. <laughs> Too late. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> so, so I hope you look at those websites and I hope you do some of the experiments in the websites because there's, I've never heard of or any kind of a source for this material other than this. So other than these websites, other than this book, I never heard about classes at the postgraduate level in any university about any of this stuff. And to me, I can't find anything really more interesting than this, you know, more useful. And so I hope, I hope you get a chance to, in the time, you know, maybe use the time when you would have come to the study group to go in the websites and do some experiments and bring your friends. This is some fabulous stuff to be practicing with your teams, with your three cells and your possibility of teams and stuff. This is a weird kind of question, but Phyllis, are you considering coming to the party that's happening in Poland over the summer? Uh, no, okay. I, I don't. I don't know what party that is, and uh, I'm not traveling right now because I'm caring for my cat. Okay, I was meant. I was talking about the expand the box and labs. Three, yeah, Three labs. Yeah, okay. Great. Why were you asking? I I had a question. I had a necessity. Ah, you wanted her to bring some Skippy peanut butter over from America. <laughs> <laughs> can exchange with some whipped cream <laughs> oh well now i have to reconsider 
These are archetypal substances. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anything else? Anybody want to wrap this up today? I think no, it's Feel, I feel nourished. Completely nourished. Yeah, completely nourished. Well, all right then. Thank you so much for holding this space and participating and like putting your life at risk. You know, your ordinary life. So. Because, you know, once you learn something, it's really difficult to unlearn it. And you start noticing things in different ways that the people around you are not noticing. And, and it, it's difficult to stop to notice the, the new things. And it's remarkable to notice these gaps between spaces, for example. And, and to try to make use of the nothingness to go into the nothingness and pop out in another space and bring people with you and see who comes and not be a victim of whatever the existing current space is. So hope you have a great time experimenting and we'll see you next time we see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Guys. Bye. Thank you. Have fun, Janet. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, bye, Grit. Bye, Sonia. Bye, Leslie. Bye, Leslie. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Sonia.